morning, everybody. Um, thank you for sharing your Memorial Day weekend with us um, and realizing that it never rains in Autzen Stadium. Thank you, Joel, but it always rains on Memorial Day weekend. So you're the smart ones. Way to go. We are going to take a look at two more nuggets of wisdom today out of Proverbs chapter 18. And these have to do with Taipei 101 and your lips, okay? Again, this title will make sense as we proceed. Let's start with Taipei 101. This is out of Proverbs 18, just verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. Many of your versions of the Bible say a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. This short proverb is pure brilliance. It's found basically in the middle of the book of Proverbs. And to me, it's almost like the pinnacle proverb of the whole book. It is amazing. So let's take a close look at it, starting by looking at some of the individual words that make up the proverb, and then we'll stitch it all back together in modern lingo at the end. The first word I want to examine is the word name. Names are a big deal. Every parent knows that. You want to choose just the right name for your child, a a name that's unique that not every kid being born in your neighborhood has, but a name that also somehow fits them. And you agonize over that name. You keep it secret from your friends that are also pregnant so they won't steal your baby's name. Names are a big deal. We even agonize over our pet's name. I came across a dog the other day. I'm not kidding you. This was the dog's name. What are you eating? So you could call your dog and just go, hey, what's your name? What are you eating? Get over here. Come over here. Sit. What are you eating? Okay. And then this dog is very aptly named. Is it, I was going to say, isn't it cute? But not so much. Um, this dog is named Bug. Is that not the perfect name for that particular dog? Okay. Names are a huge deal to us. But to the ancient Jews that this proverb was originally addressed to, names were even bigger. They're even bigger deal. You see, in their culture, the thought was this, that without a name, an object or a person didn't actually fully exist. That's why there's old Egyptian documents, and they describe the time before God finished creation. And they called that period of time the time when no name of anything had yet been named. That's how they thought. To them, no name meant no existence. And if you read through the early chapters of the book of Genesis, God completes creation. And how does he do it? By naming the elements. He called the light day and the darkness night and the expanse sky and so on. And then Adam, one of the first human beings, was given the task of naming all the animals. Probably because Eve wanted him out of the cave or wherever they lived for a while. Hey, why don't you go name all the animals, okay? And he named all of the animals. So to ancient Jews, names and existence went together. You have to understand that in hearing this proverb. This is also probably why there are so many names for God, not just out in the world, but found all throughout the Bible, because people have always tried to attach a name to God in order to try to wrap their mind around his imminence, thinking if we can just name God, we can more fully understand him. That's what they've tried to do. And those names are helpful, but they always fall short because basically in trying to name God, you're trying to describe a being that is really indescribable. But I have to admit, I have a favorite name of God. And there are many. Look through the scripture. You see Adonai, Jehovah, Jesus, Spirit, Emmanuel, Lord, God, Christ. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But my favorite is Yahweh. That's my favorite. 
and it's a Jewish name for God. Originally, it didn't contain any vowels at all. It was just Y-H-V-H, and it was really aspirated consonants. When you spoke the name Yahweh, it, it replicated the sound of your own breathing, reminding you that God is always with us. He is so close to us. He's as close as your next breath. And think about it. When all of us were born, what's the first thing a baby does? They breathe. So a baby's first words, all of our first words were not mama or dada. Okay, sorry to break that news to you. It was the name of God that was on their lips right out of the chute, so to speak. Okay, how cool is that? But back to Proverbs 18. Notice that the word name is actually the focus. It's the subject matter of this whole proverb. And the word name is actually the Hebrew word shame. And it has nothing to do with our word shame. It's actually spelled S-H-E-M. You would look at it and think it was pronounced Shem. But it's shame. And it's far more than a label or a name. A person's shame is their renown. It's their reputation. It's who they really are. For example, if I burst into, the, into this room like Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy who always just says, I am Groot, if I burst into this room and said, I am Tim, that really wouldn't tell you very much about me, would it, okay? That wouldn't give you the full story of my Timness, okay? To really understand me or anyone is to know their shame, to know their reputation, to know the essential reality of who they are. So this proverb is talking about who God is. His shame is this. His shame is that his love is oceanic. His faithfulness is never-ending. He's the giver of second chances. He is great beyond description. He is good beyond belief. All those things make up his shame. So the strong tower that we run into is not some label that us human beings have slapped onto God. No, the strong tower is the shame of God. We run into the reality of who God is, and we bask in that. We marinate in that. We absorb who God really is, his essence, the core of his being, and that's where the safety is. That's where the peace is right there, okay? Second word, I'm actually going to describe two words, strong tower. That's the second couple of words I want to look at. I want to put a picture up of, of Taipei 101. This is a building... At one point, it was the tallest building in the world, and it's found on the island of Taiwan. And it's not just a cool-looking building, which it totally is. Architecturally, it's just a work of genius. But it's also unbelievably strong and fortified. It was designed by super smart people, way smarter than most of us in this room. And it can withstand an earthquake up to 9.0 on the Richter scale, which is nothing survives that. It would probably be the only thing standing in that whole city, okay? And it can also withstand winds up to 134 miles an hour. 34 miles an hour, and we're going inside running for cover. 134 is just a disaster. It's a typhoon. So if an earthquake hit Taiwan or a typhoon hit Taiwan, a very intelligent thing to do would be to run into that tower, The strong tower, the phrase the strong tower in the proverb we read today is the Hebrew phrase migdal oz. And it doesn't mean just a tall building. It means a strong, tall, fortified building that you run into and are lifted up above your peril. That's the picture there. So running into the shame of God, running into who God is, is as smart as running into Taipei 101 during an earthquake or a typhoon. I just wanted you to have that mental picture. And now let's look at the word safe. Ooh, this is a biggie, okay? This is an important part of this proverb because to be safe 
is something we all crave in our culture. Our culture right now is addicted to safety. We have cyber security, we have home security, we have car alarm security systems, we've got all kinds, we've got airport security, which I'm going to go through this week. We've even got hurricane straps, which you have to put on new houses to keep you, <coughs> excuse me, to keep you safe from, oh, I'm sorry, I'm back on, to keep you safe from all those imaginary hurricanes that roll through Eugene, okay? And the biggest thing, sorry, my throat's just a little dry today. The biggest thing, the biggest area of safety in, in our culture, I think, is car safety. You look at cars nowadays, you have airbags. You have mandatory three-point seat belts. In fact, your car won't quit squawking at you until you buckle your seat belt. We have child safety seats, all of that. When I was growing up, we had none of that. We had seat belts, but they slid behind the seat and onto the floor because nobody used them. And we didn't have airbags. We had metal dashboards. They were the farthest thing you could think of from airbags. Nobody used their seat belts. Your only seat belt was your mom or dad's arm going whap if they put on the brakes really fast. And a car seat meant a folding lawn chair that you put in the back of your neighbor's pickup truck when you went camping. That's all it meant, okay? It's no wonder we crave the idea of safety because there's a scary world out there. I'm going to use one of our saints here, Michael. I got his permission to do it. This is Michael O'Karts, and we've been friends for a few years now. And talk about physical danger. About three weeks ago, I think it was like three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, Michael got, um, he was trying to do a good deed, give somebody some money for some gas, and the, the dog in the car thought he was attacking the owner, and the dog leapt out and broke Michael's nose and bit his upper lip off. And you would never know it because the, the plastic surgeon, you know, Thumbs up to that person, okay, did a wonderful job. And then just a week and a half ago, Michael had an accident at work, um, and a chainsaw hit his leg and gashed open his, and he showed me the pictures, which made my gag reflex go off a little bit. How many stitches were on that, just, or did you get staples? Two tubes of crazy glue and some duct tape. So he's tougher than we all are. <laughs> Oh my gosh, okay. So basically, I'm not sure I want to ride in an elevator with you anytime soon, but you're a great example of how our world is filled with physical danger, but that's not all. Sure, there's physical danger, but our world is also filled with emotional and spiritual danger. No wonder we are in the midst of an absolute epidemic of anxiety right now. I just finished watching this Netflix series. I was binge watching it because my, my wife's family's in town, so I was watching a lot of television just to you know, have some alone time. And I was watching it, and the character, the, the main characters are pilots for bombers during World War II. And you probably, it's called Catch 22. And it's got George Clooney in it and some others. And the main character, Yo Yo, one time, he is just, he just can't deal with it anymore. He just snaps because of the constant threat of physical danger because that's a scary job that they had. Many pilots never came back home from that job. And one day he just snapped. And after the plane landed and he was safely home again, he just stripped off all of his clothes and started walking around naked, even flew some of his next missions naked on the show. And I thought, that's how we all feel it sometimes, don't we? We all feel like we're just one more scary situation away from losing it from totally losing it, and maybe not running around naked, but we tend to think, oh my gosh, I'm in such danger, I need to flock to anything that brings me safety. 
which when you're a kid was your blankie or your teddy bear. But when we're adult, we, we run to things like money or a dependable car or a job that's steady or our routines. You ever notice how safe your routines make you feel? Try changing all your routines one week and see what you feel like, and you'll realize how much you count on your routines to make you feel safe. Or our performance. We think, if I can just do all the right things and be a golden boy or a golden girl, everybody will accept me and like me, and I'll feel safe in that acceptance. Stuff like that. And honestly, these things do provide a dose of safety and a little bit of comfort, but comfort zones leak. You find that as you get older. Comfort zones leak, and we still have to find things that bring us a more, a more abundant amount of safety than those things can offer. And it's at this point that many of us in desperation turn to denial. We think none of these things are truly making me feel safe, so I'll just head in towards denial. What danger? What threat? What fear? I'm not afraid. I have no fear. I'll even put a no fear bumper sticker on my car. And we're in complete denial. That doesn't really work either. I remember watching old spaghetti westerns when I was growing up on my black and white TV. I watched them not because I particularly liked them, but that was about all that was on. You had like three channels and there was just a lot of westerns on. And there was always a character in the western that got shot. Shot! not poked, not tickled, shot, and would turn to the people, his friends, there was always a dude around him and go, oh, don't worry, it's just a scratch, it's just a flesh wound. Every spaghetti western has that line in it. Don't worry about me, it's just a flesh wound. He's bleeding profusely, right? And he's saying it's just a flesh wound. And I'm thinking, oh, well, all wounds are flesh wounds, but that's a bad one. And I used to think that was so cool and so courageous and studly. Now I think it's absolutely idiotic. If I could say something to a person, if someone, one of you got shot and said, uh, it's just a flesh wound, I would say, all wounds are flesh wounds, and that's not just a flesh wound. That bad boy's going septic, and you can pour all the bourbon in it you want to, like they used to in those movies, and that's not going to help you. You're heading to Boot Hill here, buddy, okay? Comfort zones leak. Denial is not effective, not with gunshot wounds or with danger that's all around us. So we've got to find where the true and lasting safety is. And check it out. This is where the plot thickens, okay? The word Lord in this Proverbs, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That word Lord is the Hebrew word Jehovah. It's one of the names of God. And the writer of this proverb used it on purpose because it's a feminine word. It's feminine. It's overtly feminine. It describes the caring, nurturing, mothering of God. That's what it's talking about. Now let's skip to Romans 8. There's this guy named Apostle Paul. And he says some of the most amazing things in Romans chapter 8. He describes to a group of Christians, much like us, the scary stuff that can happen when you follow Jesus. There can be hardships, famine, danger, and the sword. He says to this group of believers, we face death all day long. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter, which equals the worst pep talk ever given. That'd be like your basketball coach saying, join my team because we're going to get our hind ends kicked every single game. Epic failure and losses. It's going to make headlines. Your losing streak will be a record setting. Your parents are going to deny they're even your parents, okay? That kind of thing. But at the end of this pep talk, at least he's not in denial, he says this. Let's put up Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord. There's that word again. Okay? I love that. One of my favorite authors says, when you form a relationship with Jesus, you are seized by the power of a great affection. And I've never forgotten that. That describes a relationship with Jesus better than anything I know. You become seized by the power of a great affection. And that's what Paul was getting at. That's what he was saying to these people. He was saying, we've all been seized by the power of a great affection. And because of that, we're safe. We're not safe because God will make it so that no bad things ever happen in your life. If you think that, if you think that's God's job to make sure that nothing bad ever happens in your life, you're going to be constantly angry at God and bitter your whole life. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, no, we're safe because Jehovah, the Lord, won't let go of us. Sure, bad things will happen, okay, but in the grasp of Jehovah, we know that ultimately we'll be okay because nothing can affect our essence. Nothing can affect the core of our being. That part of us is safe in the tower. I want to put up a a quote that I've used probably in four different sermons at least, and I'm going to use it continually as long as I'm a pastor because I want every one of us to commit this to our memory because it's so helpful during the dangerous times. There is something larger than yourself as a mind and body, and you have felt it. Behind everything you see and experience in life, there has been a mysterious force wanting you to know that there is no reason to be afraid ever. That guy is a believer, and I'm telling you, that's a person that has experienced the safety of running in to the tower that we call the Lord. So let me stitch this proverb all back together and then we'll get to lips, okay? What this proverb is saying in modern lingo is this. The reputation of Jehovah is a strong tower. The righteous run into who he is and they're seized by the power of a great affection. And in that grasp, they know they're going to be okay. Isn't that cool? Can't you see why this is such an important proverb? I love it. I could probably preach several sermons on this. But let's move on. To lips, okay? Proverbs chapter 18, 7. Let's look at that. The mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. This proverb is interesting to me because it connects our lips to our soul, and you wouldn't think there was a connection there, that you wouldn't think those two things are connected, but they are. It's kind of like a Chinese foot massage. If you ever got one of those, you get this massage, and they press on these pressure points in your foot, and all of a sudden, your neck or your shoulder feels better. You're going, I didn't know my foot was directly connected to my shoulder, but there's a connection there. That's what it's like in this verse. It says our lips and our souls are connected And that connection has to do with the process of temptation. I've gone over this process before too, but I also want to repeat this because we got to know this. Let's imagine in our minds that this chair right here is some sort of thing that is tempting you, that you know you shouldn't be involved in, but you're so tempted by it. Here's the process of temptation. When you first come across this temptation, you just cruise right past it. You barely even know that it exists. It doesn't get you at all. But the next time you come across the same temptation, you slow down. And I want to put up Proverbs, I mean Psalm 1.1. We're going to read about this little process first. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Okay, so here's the process. The first time you cruise by, the second time you slow down your gait. You're now walking. 
you're walking. And that gives you time to notice that temptation, to look at it and think about it. But then your, your, your spirit goes, no, that's not a good thing, and you keep cruising by. And then the next time you cruise past it and your gait slows, you're not only walking, but then you stop. And now you're standing and you're pondering that temptation and you're thinking about it and you're thinking, ooh, how great would it be to do that? How great would it be to sit in that chair? But then eventually you go, no, 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 I I can't do that. And so you move on again. And then the next time you come across the very same temptation, your gait slows down and you're walking And then you stand and you ponder it. And then finally you give in and you sit in it. You place yourself inside of that temptation. And according to Psalm 1-1, that's where the mocking comes. The shame and guilt that overwhelms you mocks you for sitting in that chair. And you're stuck. That's the process of temptation, okay? Now back to Proverbs 18. According to the proverb we just read, this process doesn't start just with our legs and moving into the wrong place at the wrong time. It starts with our lips, Let's look at a psalm that King David wrote. It's Psalm 141, just two verses. He says, God, set a guard over my mouth, Lord, there's that word again, and keep watch over the door of my lips. And then verse 4, do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds along with those who are evildoers. Do not let me eat of their delicacy. So David understood the connection there, that this process of temptation, you're not just led into it with your legs, but you can be led into it with your lips by what you save. I mean, by what you say. And so what does he do? He asks God to do him a favor. He goes, God, please place a guard over my lips. We're going to pray that prayer today, but when we do, get ready. It's a prayer that God answers really quickly, and he will place a guard over your lips, and God is really, really good at guarding our lips. Nothing get past him. Trust me, when you pray this prayer, get ready for a bunch of divine interruptions in your life where God will whisper to your spirit, don't say that. No, you don't want to say that. That'll hurt them, and it'll take you where you don't want to go. Don't say that. And he'll guard you constantly, okay? It's especially difficult for me to listen to his whispers because I'm the kind of person that likes to get the last word in in an argument. In fact, oftentimes when I argue, maybe with a family member or my wife, I'll say something, then I'll just leave so they can't get the last word in. I'm like just a hit-and-run kind of guy, okay? So I'll be having this discussion with somebody, and suddenly I'll be tempted to say something that's not only going to damage them, it'll take me where I don't want to go. It'll ensnare my soul. And I'll hear that whisper from the Lord. Don't say it. You don't want to go there and you don't want to do that to them. And I have this inner argument. It takes like a millisecond with God. But please, God, please let me say it. Please, God, it will feel so good. And I can win this argument if I say that. And we both know I like to win. Please let me say it. And God will repeatedly say, no, 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 no. That will ensnare your soul. That will lead you into temptation and it will hurt them. Don't do it. So expect that to happen. But please, don't just stop at defense. Don't just ask God to guard your lips. Play offense with your life too because you can't say the wrong thing when you're too busy saying the right thing. Proverbs 18.21 is a famous proverb too. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
So yes, we have the ability to speak death into people's situations, just kill them emotionally and spiritually. But we also have the ability to speak life to them. So make it your goal this week. Just challenge yourself. How many people, this is such a fun activity, how many people can I walk up to and speak life into their situation, breathe life into them? How many people can I bless, encourage, love, and and honor with my lips? And when you do that, you'll realize that, yes, our lips are connected to the process of temptation, but they're also connected to the process of joy in other people's lives, and that's a much better connection. Let me pray for us, can I?